Second Timothy chapter four. Second Timothy chapter four. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Make every effort to come to me soon, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. But Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus, and the books, especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me in order that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila in the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth. Corinth, but Trophimus I left sick at Miletus. Make every effort to come before winter. Eubulus greets you, and uh, also Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brethren. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Now, this letter is likely the last letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. And we can tell that he knows and anticipates his death from the last section of of this letter, the last section of this chapter. But with his last letter, this section is a sort of final address or charge to Timothy. And that charge is found in verses 1 to 8. He says in verse 1, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. He says this is a solemn charge. He's not playing games. He's very serious about what he's saying. He knows his life is about to end, his life and ministry. So what he wants Timothy to do is to maintain the faith faithfully, just as Paul did throughout his life. He wants that to continue. So he presents this solemn charge. It's a solemn charge it's in the, because it's in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. What he says and does is an, an open book. He has a clear conscience and he's doing this in the presence of God so that what he has been all about, he wants Timothy to be all about because God and Christ will hold him accountable just as God and Christ will hold Paul accountable. 
The charge is in the presence of God because God will see as a witness and he will act as a judge on the day of judgment. And this is what he means in verse 1. Christ Jesus is the one who will actually judge the living and the dead. He will do this upon his appearing and when we enter into his eternal kingdom in that future day. When he comes with the appearance of his kingdom, that is when eternity begins and we reign with him and we are with him as kings and priests forever. And at that time, he's going to judge all of us. All of us in Christ, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1. However, 2 Corinthians 5.10, we all shall appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of the deeds done in the body, whether good or evil. We are all going to be judged as believers by Christ on the day of judgment on our faithfulness. And whatever we have done that is wood, hay, straw will be burned up. And the rest of it that has been gold, silver, and precious stones, that will be tested by fire and that will remain. This is 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15 and 2 Corinthians 5, 10 make it clear that we believers will have a judgment not for eternal life or eternal death, but another judgment on our faithfulness and we will receive rewards accordingly. So, we must know, especially preachers of the gospel, must know that we will be held accountable. Amen. James 3, verse 1. Let many of you, my brethren, not become teachers, for as such we shall incur a stricter judgment. James 3, 1. A stricter judgment for those who teach. Those who take up the Bible and explain it to others will be held in greater accountability than those who do not. So if all of this is true, verse 2, what should we do? Preach the word. Notice that. It says, preach the word. Not preach ourselves, but preach the word. Not preach another book, but preach the word. Not preach the latest and the greatest of science, of psychology and sociology, or sports and hobbies. Not preach those things, but preach the word. Second. Corinthians 4, 5. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. So when we preach the word faithfully, we will be preaching about Christ as Lord and Savior. He is the only one we need to know, the only one that we need to preach. Eternal life consists of this. For this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. John 17, 3. This preaching needs to be done in season and out of season. That is, when it is the time and the proper place, and when it is not the time and the proper place. That is, be ready when it's convenient or inconvenient, whether you are in a comfortable situation or an uncomfortable situation. Preach the word. This is all that people need to know, all that people need to have. They need to have this word, whether it is good for us or convenient for us in the season or if it's out of season. We have to preach the word. Reprove, rebuke. These two are more of the harsher terms, reprove and rebuke. That is, reproving and rebuking need to occur in order to 
cut the cancer out of the body. We know that cutting the cancer out has a benefit. It has a benefit so that the cancer doesn't spread. And in the spiritual sense, we need to reprove and rebuke people because they have spiritual can cancer. They have spiritual diseases. This, the, the spiritual, their spiritual condition cannot be overcome with simply putting a bandage on it or simply saying, take some medicine or simply saying, eat some better food. All of that is necessary in some situations, but when you have a fatal disease, you, those things are not going to help. You need to do something that is severe and harsh that will actually excise that disease from the body. In the spiritual sense, that is reproving and rebuking. You cannot identify a sin to somebody and say, I know that's your personality. I know that that's your preference. I know that that's the way you like to do things. I know that that's just the way you are. That doesn't help the person. You have to, if you know it, it's sin, the Bible calls it sin, you have to call it sin. And then specify the kind of sin it is. You have to say it. You have to say, adultery is sin. Fornication is sin. Uh, homosexuality is sin. Bestiality is sin. Just to use sexual sins as an example. That all, and, and now we have ecosexuality. That is, uh, having... Uh, a sexual relationship with nature, with trees and rocks and grass and all that, that, that is going on these days too. This is all uh, perverted and, and, and contrary to the plan of God from Genesis chapters 1 and 2. All of this happens. But it doesn't help the person by saying, well, yeah, you, that's your way, that's your orientation. We all have a different orientation. It doesn't help the situation. The Bible doesn't call it an orientation, a preference, a personality, or anything like that. The Bible calls it sin, and then it has to be identified. And even the person has to be rebuked personally. You have to say, I'm talking about you. I'm talking about you, my friend. Remember Nathan and David? When David sinned, Nathan the prophet presents a parable to him, 2 Samuel chapter chapters 11 and 12. The sin in chapter 11 and the confrontation and punishment in chapter 12. Nathan the prophet confronts him and presents a parable. David hears the parable and says, surely that man is a son of death or deserves to die. He's a scoundrel and he needs to pay back fourfold. He presented the parable and David thought Nathan was talking about somebody else. Yeah. And then Nathan had to say, you are the man. He had to say, you are the man. And he exclaimed. My Bible has an exclamation there. And likely that's what he did. You are the man. I'm talking about you. I'm not talking about somebody else when I presented that parable. I'm talking about you. And then what did Nathan do? He outlined David's sins. Then David repented. Then he repented. When Nathan confronted him that way, because he, had, he, he was a believer, David was, and he had a softened heart because of that at that point. And then Psalm 51 is testimony to his repentance. So, this is the kind of reproving and rebuking that needs to occur in the preaching and the teaching and the explanation of the gospel from day to day, from person to person, whether it's in the pulpit or in the pew, however it happens, this is the kind of thing that needs to happen. Exhortation. Exhortation is both 
reproving, it has a sense of warning, but it also has a sense of encouragement. Exhortation both warns people but also encourages them. Encourages them, repent of your sins, believe in the gospel, turn away from it, and the blessing of God will rest on you. The hope of God, the promises of God, forgiveness of sins, it's all laid out right here. That's the exhortation in the encouragement part of it. But the exhortation in the warning part of it says, if you don't turn away from sin, the judgment of God rests on you, and there's no escape. It's only Christ. Christ is the only one who can deliver you from your sin. We know that exhortation means that because the letter to the Hebrews is one perfect example of it. The letter has warnings in it. People call them warning passages. They have, the, the letter has warnings in it, but it also has encouragement in it. A, a chapter of warnings, or two chapters, chapters 3 and 4, for example, and then a chapter of encouragement, Hebrews 11, the chapter of the Hall of Faith. So it has both. And notice at the end of it what he calls his own letter. Hebrews 13, 22, But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. He calls his own letter a word of exhortation, and we know it has both encouragement and admonition. It has encouragement and it has warnings. It has both. So when we exhort people, it should include both. And this should be done with great patience and instruction. When people are willing, when they are humble, when they're listening, and they don't get it, then we should be doing this with great patience and instruction. And even when we come across people who are irritable, we have to practice great patience and instruction with them too. People who don't get it, don't understand, and they are irritable, we need to tolerate that and put up with it to a certain extent. That's what he said in 2 Timothy 2. 2 Timothy 2, 24. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. This is the way it should happen. Now, the great patience does not mean that it's unending patience. Right. Great patience does not equate to letting them continue with their sour attitude, sour words and behavior, on and on and on without any confrontation and without any expectation of their repentance or that they should go away. He does explain in Titus chapter 3, Titus 3 verse 10, Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Titus 3, 10 and 11, reject the factious man after a first and second warning. So, great patience during the first and second warning, but after that he should be rejected. If he's not going to listen, he keeps being a sore thumb, he keeps being sour and peevish, always around you and around the teaching, he won't keep quiet, he won't listen, then he needs to be rejected. Because he is factious, perverted, sinning, and self-condemned. Verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure a sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. 
They won't listen long to sound doctrine. They'll listen for a short time, but then they walk away. They'll listen for a temporary period, and then they will walk away. They will not endure it, the sound doctrine, because they want what they want to hear. They want that which is pleasant. They want that which is good. They want things that will make them feel like they can continue living the way they want to live in their sin without anyone making them guilty, making them feel guilty. They want to live in their sin without any guilt. This is why they'll turn away from the truth and will turn aside to myths. They'll turn aside to things that are unreal and untrue. They would rather believe a myth because it makes them feel good rather than listening to a preacher of the truth who will convict them of their sin. They don't want that. This is the way of human nature. Isaiah chapter 30. Isaiah 30 verse 9. For this is a rebellious people, false sons, sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, you must not see visions, and to the prophets, you must not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us pleasant words. Prophesy illusions. They actually say that. uh, Speak pleasant words. Prophesy illusions. Myths. Get out of the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. They even tell the messenger, get out of the way. I don't want to listen to you anymore. This is the way people are. They will turn aside their ears from the truth and go to myths. Cling on to myths. But what should we do? Even though when the people start turning away, what should we do? Should we be demoralized? Should we compromise the message? Should we say, no, no, don't take me so seriously? Should we say things like that? Verse 5, but you be sober in all things. Be sober. The opposite of sobriety is drunkenness. When people are not practicing the truth of God, when they're not being faithful to God, they're being like a man intoxicated. Because they are easily swayed here, this way, that way. They don't have presence of mind. They don't have rational capabilities. They don't see that if they compromise the truth now, then it's going to be dangerous for him, for himself and for the others in the time to come, in the life to come. They don't look at the reality of the situation, the sobriety of it. They don't look at it that way. They are as though they are overcome by strong drink. So, be sober, endure hardship. Yes, the people will not like it. They'll speak against you. They'll slander. They'll be malicious gossips. They'll do these kinds of things against you, but endure hardship. Press on. It's worth it. Do the work of an evangelist. Keep evangelizing. Even though people will mock you, call you names, spit in your face, show you the door, hit you, punch you in the face, Even though they'll do these things to you, do the work of an evangelist. Keep speaking the gospel, telling them the truth, and even exposing sin. Fulfill your ministry. Isn't that the reason why you went into the ministry? What, What was the reason you went into the ministry? Do you not know? And if you did not know, why did you not know? Who didn't teach you? And why didn't you read the Bible before you went into the ministry? If you had read the Bible and read at least... First and Second Timothy and Titus, you would have known what the ministry would be like. And if you didn't know, then it's your own fault too. 
It's not just the other's fault who didn't train you properly. It's also your fault because it's not you didn't read the Bible and figured out that these things would happen. But now that you said, yes, God has called me to the ministry, now that you do have a ministerial position, don't complain about it. Right. Fulfill your ministry. Do what you're supposed to do. You vowed to God. You promised to God. You said, I will preach the gospel. I am commissioned. God called me into the ministry. You said that. You said that to yourself. You said that to your spouse. You said that to your family. You said that to the church that received you. You said that to everybody. You said it in the presence of God. So fulfill your ministry. Do what you're supposed to do. Yeah. Again, the apostle is not living in a vacuum. Verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. He uses this metaphor of the Old Testament drink offering. That is, he's pouring, the drink offering was to pour out, a symbol of pouring out your whole life to God. And this is what he did. He poured out his whole life to God. He lived for God. And he says, the time of my departure has come. The time for me to leave this world, to depart from this world, and to go to the world to come, it has come. My departure. Now, when he says, my departure, for us to know that he is most likely talking about his death. Let's take another passage. Philippians 1, Philippians 1, 21. For, me, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. But I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. His departure in Second Timothy is a departure of death. Leaving this life in order to go to the life to come. Then he says, 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. He's explaining about his own life and testimony, not in a boastful way, but in a way to remind Timothy of his own faithfulness that just as God empowered me, the apostle, to live this way, God will empower you to do the same. Amen. I'm not discouraged. I have been fighting until the very end. You fight until the very end. Fight the good fight. It is a battle. It is warfare. It is the life of a soldier, a spiritual soldier. And it's necessary to fight this good fight. Not all fights are good fights, but this is a good fight. This is a fight worthwhile. I have finished the course. I wasn't training as a runner. I wasn't training, and then I gave up halfway in my practice. Or I didn't go onto the field and try to uh, do the course and then do it only partially. If I do it only partially, I know I'm, I'm, I'm useless, I'm, I'm worthless, and people will laugh at me. I'm not like that. If I say I'm going to enroll in this race and I'm going to press on, I'm going to train myself and I'm going to do it until the very end, I'm going to do it until the very end. I have kept the faith. He did not abandon the faith as we will see uh, others in this chapter and elsewhere. They abandoned the faith. That is, they kept it temporarily, but then they abandoned it. Temporary faith is not real faith. Amen. Temporary faith is false. Temporary faith is false. People will believe for a day, a week, a month, maybe a year, maybe even a few years, they'll believe 
and then they'll walk away. They'll walk away either in their theology or in their morality or both. They will walk away. When they walk away, they don't have the real faith because those with the real faith maintain their faith until the end. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 13, He who endures till the end will be saved. He who endures till the end will be saved. And the apostle says in Hebrews chapter 3, Hebrews 3, verse 14, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. We are true partakers of Christ if we hold fast from the beginning until the end. So if we don't hold firm until the end, we don't really believe it at the beginning. That's the point that the apostle is saying, making, that I have kept the faith until the end. I am an example for you to model. And in the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. We who are believers in Christ, we will have a reward that awaits us, this crown of righteousness. And it's not just for the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul had his special office in this life, but he was a man and a believer, a human, just like you and I. Just like Elijah prayed, and he had a human nature like ours, and he, he prayed that it would not rain for three and a half years, and then he prayed that it would rain, and God answered his prayer. Not because he was a prophet, because he was a man with a nature like ours, and he, he had the effective prayer of a righteous man. In the same way here, when we practice righteousness, the reward that the apostle receives is also our reward. Not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. We cannot put the Apostle Paul on a pedestal so high that we say, God doesn't expect me to live that way. We can't say that. The crown of righteousness is for all of us to receive. Then, some final matters in verses 9 and following. Make every effort to come to me soon, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Among these men that he has named, apparently the one did so for a wrong reason. We don't know the reason, and perhaps it's not a bad or wrong reason that Crescens and Titus left and went to their uh, places of Galatia and Dalmatia. But Demas, Demas is one who had temporary faith. He had temporary faith. His name appears in Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, but there, as a believer, that letter was written a few years earlier. As a believer and one who was among the people and doing ministry, not to somebody who had abandoned the faith. This shows that there are people who will temporarily be among us, and the Bible considers them brethren and believers because they are among us. But they show their true colors on whether they remain with us or not. And when they depart from us, they show they are not true believers. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be shown that they all are not of us. When they leave, when they go on their own merry way, 
When they do that, they show that they are abandoning the faith, they're not really of the faith. And they're showing that to all of us, that they're not true believers. This is what Demas was. Having loved this present world has deserted me. He was loving the world, as described in the earlier part of 2 Timothy 3. He loved the things of the world. Verse 11, only Luke is with me. Luke was his traveling companion from Acts chapter 16 to 28. In various places when the Apostle Paul ministered from Acts 16 to 28, Luke, who wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts, was the companion of Paul for much of his ministry. And he says, only Luke is with you. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. Now, Paul um, mentions Mark here at the end of his life as someone who is useful. However, in Acts chapters 12 and 13 and 14, especially 12 and uh, 14, and also Acts 15, Mark, he went along in the ministry, but then at one place he deserted them, and then Barnabas wanted to take Mark along, even though, according to Paul's estimation, Mark had not proven himself after his desertion. He had not proven himself well enough yet. Barnabas thought yes. Paul thought no. They had a disagreement, Acts 15, at the end of the chapter. They had a disagreement. So Paul went on and did ministry apart from Mark and Barnabas, and Barnabas and Mark went along with ministry. However, some years had passed, and it looks as though Mark had proven himself, even though at that one point he abandoned them in their place of ministry, he proven him, proved himself to be faithful, and now Paul is saying here, pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. Which is a ray of hope, right? Not all, we are all not going to be faithful at all times in our Christian life. We're going to do some things that are wrong and even scandalous. But when repentance occurs, and the people around us see that true repentance has occurred, that should be an encouragement to us to press on and to encourage others to press on and encourage other people to help the people who have temporarily walked away, temporarily done wrong, temporarily sinned. Help them to overcome that sin. That's what happened with Mark. Verse 12, But Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. He sends... Now, all the people around him, they didn't all abandon him. Paul even says here, he sent Tychicus away to help the church in Ephesus. Verse 13, When you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus and the books, especially the parchments. Now, Paul was in house arrest, Acts chapter 28, house arrest in Rome, awaiting trial with Caesar. And apparently, at that point, for two years, he was in house arrest, and then he was released... He did more ministry. He wrote Second uh, Timothy because he was rearrested, and when he was rearrested, then he was executed. But until that point comes, he is wanting warmth. He wants clothing because he's a prisoner, and also he wants the books. That is the books of the sacred books, the biblical books. He wants them, especially those that were written on the parchments. The writ written on animal skins, he wanted those because he wanted to preserve them himself and pass them on to somebody else who would preserve those 
parchments. Now, Alexander, 14. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. Now he's mentioning one malicious person, that is Alexander the coppersmith, who harmed him much and entrusts, without retaliation, he entrusts him to the Lord. He says, the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. He doesn't take on personal vengeance because the Bible says in Deuteronomy 32, vengeance is mine. Vengeance is mine. And Paul repeats that in Romans 12. Vengeance is mine. Old Testament, New Testament, vengeance belongs to the, to the Lord. And he prays to the Lord and entrusts the, the situation into the Lord's hand to repay Alexander for what he deserves according to his deeds because God is a righteous judge. And likely, the Lord will repay him. The Lord is the Lord Jesus, in verse 14. Right. Gentle Jesus, now, is a righteous judge then. Okay? We must face him, and even people who harm the people of God will face that judgment. It's not enough for Paul to be on guard, but he says, Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. He was so opposed to the truth... He did it with great rigor and vigor. He hated it. And you, Timothy, and your people need to know him by name, know him by doctrine, know him by face, and avoid him and oppose him. Have nothing to do with him. We learn from this, just as we saw from Demas, and even in chapter 3, Jonas and Jambres. We can also go to chapter 2, Hymenaeus and Philetus, chapter 2, verse 17. And even in chapter 1, verse 15, Figulus and Hermogenes. In each of these chapters, he mentions two false teachers. He names them by name. Right. He names them by name because the people need to know who we're talking about. We can't talk in vague and general terms. Otherwise, we don't know what, who you're talking about. We need to know who you're talking about so we can know his doctrine and avoid him. Avoid him and even work against him by preaching the truth and telling the people the truth and helping them to have their doubts and confusions clarified so that they not listen and believe what the false teachers are saying. You can't do that unless you name them. The Bible names false teachers from the book of Genesis, Cain. And yes, he was a false teacher. Jude, verse 11, mentions Cain among all the various false teachers. Cain was a false teacher, and the Nicolaitans, named after a Nicholas in the book of Revelation, chapter 2. The, from beginning to end, the Bible mentions the names of false teachers in many, many places. We must do so ourselves so that our people know who we're talking about, what their doctrine is, and work against that doctrine, believe the truth, and refute the error. Verse 16 uh, verse 16. At my first offense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. Now, this first offense would have been probably Acts chapter 28, his first Roman imprisonment when he was in house arrest for two full years. At that time, when he defended himself, the people around him, the believers, deserted him. Sound familiar? This is just like what the disciples did with Jesus. When he was arrested, they deserted him. 
They didn't hang around. They deserted him for a temporary time, and then they came back and watched all the events happen. So this is what happened to Paul as well. Paul knows that this kind of desertion, this kind was temporary, and these people were believers. They showed themselves to be believers throughout their life, and now here they had a weak moment when they abandoned him. So he prays that they... Uh, may not have this sin counted against them. This is the same when Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Luke 23, 34, on the cross, Jesus said that. And that's the same with Stephen in Acts 7, verse 60, when Stephen said, uh, do not hold this sin against them. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And among those attackers and persecutors of Stephen, one of them was Saul of Tarsus. The Apostle Paul later, Saul of Tarsus. The rest of them, they were all wrong and unbelievers and malicious, and even Saul was at the time. But there was a difference, and Stephen didn't know who among them would end up believing. But he does pray that among them, there might be one at least who repents. And this is what he's wishing for them here. May it not be counted against them. However, when people are this way, our only and main confidence is God. Verse 17, But the Lord stood with me, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me in order that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was delivered out of the lion's mouth. God was with him, and God enabled him to proclaim among the people all the Gentiles, not all the Gentiles in the world, That's not what he means. All the Gentiles means all the Gentiles there that needed to hear the gospel. They heard it. Those among the Romans, the Roman soldiers, the Roman guards, and whoever was conducting him and making sure he was okay and safe and then presenting him before the judge and before Caesar. All of this, he had opportunities to have all the Gentiles here, and he was delivered out of the lion's mouth. He was delivered out of this dilemma and predicament. Then he says in verse 18, The Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to His heavenly kingdom. Even if He's executed, which is an evil deed, God will deliver him from that. Why? Because his soul is safe with God. That's what he means. My soul is safe with God and I will be delivered from that and there will be a day of resurrection when I will be raised from the dead immortally. When I'm raised immortally, that's going to reverse anything that the Caesar will do against me in his execution and in his evil deed because I've done nothing wrong. So when he does wrong to me, it's an evil deed that he perpetrates against me. But I will be delivered from all of this because the Lord will deliver me and bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. Hallelujah. Safely. Matthew 10, 28. And do not fear those who kill the body, but afterwards are unable to kill the soul. But rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Don't fear people who can only kill the body, but fear God who can kill both soul and body in hell. In Paul's case, his soul was safe and he knew ultimately on the day of resurrection his body will be fine just just as well so no worries that takes foresight that takes hope and faith 
to look for future things as more important, future, invisible, unseen things as more important than current, physical, material things. Otherwise, you can't endure this. Otherwise, you can't experience the afflictions of life unless you look forward to the future. And to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul's death and his life were for the glory of God. We read that in Philippians 1, 1 to 24. His body, whether alive or dead, was going to glorify God. His life, whether alive or dead, was going to glorify God. And that's all that mattered. So then whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, do to the glory of God. Final greetings, 19 and following. Greet Prisca and Aquila in the household of Onesiphorus. In the case of Prisca and Aquila, these were his companions. And in Corinth, Acts chapter 18, they were there and they helped him in the ministry. The household of Onesiphorus, that is mentioned in 2 Timothy 1.16, when he says, May the Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. May the Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day, and you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. These, these believers in Ephesus, and Onesiphorus in particular, when he came to Rome, he eagerly searched for him. He wasn't ashamed of Paul. He wasn't ashamed of identifying with this Roman prisoner, even though the society would say, he, he must be an evil man, he must be a criminal, he did something wrong. After all, he's got chains, he's in prison. no. He knew the, the facts of the matter, and he wasn't ashamed. In fact, he came with his presence to refresh me, to help me, to encourage me. And so greetings to him. Then 20, Erastus remained at Corinth, but Trophimus I left sick at Miletus. Um, Erastus is also, he's mentioned in Acts chapter 19. In Acts chapter 19 and verse 20. 1922, it says that, and having sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Timothy and Erastus were companions who went to <coughs> Ephesus also to encourage and to help Paul in the ministry, and now he is at Corinth. Trophimus he leaves sick at Miletus. He doesn't tell us the nature of this sickness. But notice here, yeah. he leaves him sick. Right. This verse, among the many verses on this topic, shows that it doesn't matter how much faith you have. It doesn't matter how much faith your uh, fellow believers have who are praying for you. If God wants to leave you sick, he will leave you sick. People say, if you have enough faith, or if the people who pray for you have enough faith, or a combination of the two, you will be healed of any and all diseases. Not true. Not true. This verse shows that Paul left him sick in uh, the city of Miletus. If he wants to heal you, he will heal you. If we ask anything and it is in accordance with his will, he hears us. If it's in accordance with his will, he hears us. 1 John 5.14, also James chapter 4, James 4.13, 4, 
James 4.13, he describes both sickness or life and he describes wealth. Today, we have many who preach a health and wealth gospel, but that health and wealth gospel is sin. James 4.13, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. This pursuit of the health and wealth gospel, which is a false gospel, a different gospel, it is not consulting and depending on the will of God. Verse 15, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live, which involves our health. And also do this or that. That is, engage in business and make a profit. If that's going to happen, then it all depends on the will of God. But when we don't live that way, we boast. It's arrogance. It's evil. It's sin. It's not the right thing. James says it's all those things. Then um, he wants to see his beloved Timothy. Make every effort to come before winter. Eubulus greets you, and also Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brethren. Those who were there and helping him greet Timothy, and he wants to see Timothy's face before he dies. This is the kind of love and camaraderie that he had, that the people longed to be with uh, the others. Even though they were, there was a great distance and travel would have been more difficult for them uh, than it is for many of us, they still wanted to be with each other. They knew that they needed each other. Psalm 119:63. I am a companion of all those who fear you and of those who keep your precepts. I am a companion of these kinds of people. I am their friend. 74. Psalm 119:74. May those who fear you see me and be glad because I wait for your word. May the people of God who fear God mutually fear God, when they see each other, may it bring joy and happiness to them because I wait for your word. I hope in your word. They hope in your word. I fear God. They fear God. And it's good to be around the people of God so that we can have mutual encouragement, mutual joy like that. So, this is what Paul experiences in verse 21. And finally, may the Lord be with your spirit, grace be with you. We need God's presence. And this is why Jesus said, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. We need his presence to be with our spirit. And when the Lord is with us, we can overcome anything. Amen. When the Lord is with us, we can conquer whatever comes our way. Spiritually conquer by faith in Christ. We will spiritually conquer everything that we face. And his grace. When His grace is with us, that's all, all that we need. If we have His grace, His Spirit of grace will give us the, the power we need to overcome our sin, overcome the world, overcome the devil. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.